Ed Williams, thanks for being here with me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So in your reporting on the foster care system and children who were supposed to be served by CYFD, in a nutshell, and I know you've been reporting on this for a long time, how are these kids doing? Oh man, um, it's a mixed bag. Um, I wish I could say they're all doing well. Um, more frequently, you know, it's trauma upon trauma upon trauma, and uh, you know, I mean, it's heartbreaking because a lot of times um, I'll write a story about a kid and then see them a year, two, three years later uh, pop up in another, you know, another really sad issue. So, um, you know, these are kids who need a lot of help. Um, in some cases, there are, uh, you know, there are children who've been able to age out of the system and get a job and do well. And in a lot more cases, um, you know, they just continued facing a lot of hardships. Right. So reading your stories, there are some kids and some teenagers who I've not been able to stop thinking about since reading these stories. Um, who are some of the, what are some of the stories that still continue to haunt you? Um, well, I mean, they, they're all pretty haunting. I mean, the first story I did uh, at Searchlight was about a young boy, I think he was 11 years old at the time, and his sister um, who had been put into a treatment foster home in Farmington. This was like a, a home that was supposed to, you know, provide extra mental health services, be highly trained, um, and it ended up being a really uh, brutal child abuse situation. The foster mother was, um, you know, chaining the kids to the bed, um, beating them so badly that at one point one had to go to the emergency room. Um, and that foster mom's now in jail for, I think, an 18-year sentence. <clears throat> but, you know, the, the point of that story was that CYFD was renewing the licenses of these companies even when they weren't doing background checks or any sort of safety protocols. Um, and I have seen that same boy uh, pop up over and over again. In fact, uh, last time, uh, the last story that we wrote about a sexual assault that had occurred at the CYFD office, uh, it turned out that this same boy was the roommate of, uh, of you know, the sexual assailant, um, who also, you know, himself was a victim. He was placed in the foster home run by, um, I think it was Garcia was the last name of this foster parent. Uh, Family Works was the company who was just a serial pedophile and had been abusing young children for 20 years. So you see the way that these stories kind of keep popping up, um, and it is pretty haunting. Um, so, but you know, they all, um, they all stick with you. They're, um, they're stories that are, that are heartbreaking, but I think that are also important uh, for people to know. Absolutely. Um, how many kids are we talking about in the foster system through CYFD? It fluctuates. I believe it's around 2,000 um, at last count that I saw. I, I don't have the numbers right in front of me. Um, but, you know, that's a pretty broad number. The number that we've been focusing on lately are the older kids um, that have the highest needs, and that's a much smaller number, you know, in the hundreds. So that, that higher number of 2,000, I think, captures short stays, people who might be in the system, you know, very briefly, uh, that are falling in and out. It's kind of a point in time, is, is my understanding of that number. So there are a lot of these kids, um, and there's also a lot that, you know, are in the same situation but just haven't been picked up by the foster care system. I mean, we're not doing very well in New Mexico for child well-being. We just, again, ranked last in the country from the Annie Casey kids count, so. Right. 
So some of you've been reporting on this for a long time, and some of your stories focus on Farmington, Las Cruces, Albuquerque. Um, is this an urban problem? Is this a statewide problem? It's a statewide problem. I mean, the populations are, are, you know, obviously more concentrated in Albuquerque and Las Cruces and Santa Fe, so you see more cases there. Um, but there are issues that happen all the time in urban areas, I mean, I'm sorry, rural areas. Um, you know, there was a really bad case in Tucumcari of uh, abusive uh, foster parent uh, several years ago. I mean, that's a pretty small town, right? You see this in Roswell and Clovis um, all over the place. And are these new problems that you're reporting on, do you think? I don't think so. I've been on this beat for about five years um, of child well-being, and you know they, they mostly are entrenched. Things get worse, um, and some things get better. Um, and so the problems, though, I mean, are so deeply rooted in New Mexico. We have issues with addiction, with poverty with um, you know access to education and all these kind of play together right to create the conditions for you know really serious problems for childhood um, and so they're complex um, they're mostly not new um, some things you know crop up here and there that are new but um, but for the most part they're pretty entrenched yeah so I keep thinking about a few years ago when Governor Susana Martinez and people who worked in her administration decimated the state's behavioral health care system. Mm -hmm. Has that played out? Has that impacted these kids who are suffering today? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's a big part of uh, kind of the background for the most recent stories that we were writing about a teenagers in care. Um, the behavioral health system was completely dismantled and it still hasn't been uh, rebuilt. So kids have a hard time finding help because the nonprofits that existed to help them with counseling or whatever other services um, have never recovered from that. Um, and there's still a lot of bitterness from the ones that you know, have recovered uh, from that, um, that shakeup. But uh, that has continued to play out in all kinds of unexpected ways, um, and we're still very much in the middle of that, that problem with the lack of providers. Right. So you mentioned those nonprofits. Please help me understand these private foster care companies. And you've written about some abuses like La Familia Namaste and Farmington. Um, what are these companies? Why do they exist? How does the state vet them or give them contracts? So when it comes to just uh, standard foster care, that's run uh, by the state. CYFD manages directly its foster homes, um, but there's something called treatment foster care. Treatment foster care is a step up. It's usually um, between uh, you know, foster care and residential treatment. Um, these are supposed to be like therapeutic, highly trained uh, families that um, offer kind of a home environment where a kid can uh, receive um, you know, services for uh, psychiatric or mental health needs um, that are trauma related. So this, you know, I think this is pretty standard across the country. I mean, it, there, the state doesn't really have the capacity to run that itself. Uh, it's run by nonprofits um, such as La Familia, which is now closed. Um, there are several that have closed in the, re you know, in recent years. Um, but uh, they are supposed to be uh, a way for kids to be in a home environment and still receive those kinds of, you know, um, higher level care. Uh, because 
a kid needs to be in a home environment to receive, like to actually have mental health services work. Uh, residential treatment is another option, but that has lots of problems itself. So uh, the state licenses these companies and every year it goes in and does an audit uh, to make sure they're following all of the safety protocols. And that's everything from making sure there's a fence around the swimming pool to making, you know, to criminal background checks and, and so forth. So uh, the story that we did, this was several years ago now, uh, found that you know, the state was basically rubber stamping those renewals, uh, even when it was finding you know, massive safety violations. There was one company called Family Works, uh, which um, recently closed uh, after some investigations, but we counted uh, hundreds, like I think it was almost 300 violations that the state had identified and continued to renew its license anyway. Um, and then, you know, there was a high profile case of, of a pedophile foster parent that um, should have been caught by the safety check process, but wasn't. So um, that's treatment foster care. Nonprofits also run uh, youth homeless shelters, uh, you know, drop-in centers, counseling programs. Um, they're, they're an important part of the whole, you know, spectrum of care in the state. So you mentioned those 300 abuses. Are these things like um, fences around the swimming pool or are these like chaining kids? Well, so it's called a home study, a safe home study. Someone will go in from the licensing department with a checklist and make sure that yes, if there's a swimming pool, does it have a fence around it so a child couldn't fall in? Are there like, you know, um, covers on the electric sockets, um, little things like that. But it's also supposed to do, you know, a background check, criminal history check, uh, courts check, make sure that there's no criminal records, check for firearms, um, and those kinds of things. And if there are red flags that aren't, you know, uh, something like, you know, a bunch of uh, loss, lawsuits or, uh, or problems like financially, that wouldn't disqualify someone, but they should be scrutinized more. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of the process. It's supposed to be the state licensing, uh, the CYFD licensing department sets the uh, standards and inspects them and makes sure that they're being complied with. Um, but we found that was not happening very often. Yeah, you also have written about um, foster care kids and teens ending up in homeless shelters. Um, why is that happening? And um, you know, what happens to them in those situations? Yeah, so um, you mentioned the behavioral health shakeup in 2013. Um, you know, ever since then, there had been a lot of kids that were placed in residential treatment centers. These were like inpatient, basically psychiatric hospitals for kids, but the state had been shutting down uh, the majority of those beds for quite a while. Uh, Desert Hills was the first, and there was YHA, uh, Bernalillo Academy. And so we lost most of the residential treatment capacity. Um, there were lots of problems, abuses, you know, good reasons to, to shut some of those places down. But um, that left an entire population of really high needs, mostly teenage uh, foster youth without, you know, a place to go. Um, the state had promised to build like a new system of behavioral uh, community-based uh, health centers uh, for mental and behavioral health. That hadn't happened. There was still a shortage of foster homes, so we knew that there was a population of kids that was displaced. We wanted to find them. Um, and so where we found them was, yeah, in these youth homeless shelters. These are uh, run by the same nonprofits we were talking about. Um, they're not bad places, they're just uh, meant for, you know, to house a runaway teenager for a day or two while the parents can find, uh, you know, it's, it's a very short-term uh, uh, place that a kid's supposed to be. So 
CYFD was just without a spot to put any of these kids. They couldn't find a foster home. Uh, and so they were either living in the CYFD office or they were living in these homeless shelters, uh, which don't provide psychiatric services. They don't provide any sort of, uh, you know, high needs mental health care, aside from maybe a counselor that's on site. So the kids were, you know, being dropped off sometimes directly from psychiatric hospitals. A CYFD worker would pick a kid up from the hospital discharge and drop them at a homeless shelter and then leave them there until there was some sort of crisis, you know, a suicide attempt, uh, some big outburst, uh, the kids would run away. And then um, a worker would basically pick the kid up uh, and then take him to another shelter. And this is called the shelter shuffle, right? They'll be placed in shelter after shelter throughout the state. And some, some of these teenagers spending their entire teenage years in this situation without a stable place, without any sort of like adequate mental health care, um, and, you know, they were just having one crisis after another. Every single day, virtually, uh, a shelter in New Mexico calls 911 for help uh, with a kid uh, in foster care. Wow. Um, you mentioned foster families, foster homes. In a story, I think it was last year, you wrote that across the U.S. there's a shortage of foster homes and even fewer for teens. Here in New Mexico, the number of non-related foster homes willing to take teenagers has decreased 44 percent since 2018. What has happened in the last five years? There's been a national um, you know, decline in foster homes. Uh, part of it is that it's a really, really difficult job. There's a lot of people who want to be foster parents who have their heart in the right place, but um, it's, it's hard. Uh, the kids aren't given the resources a lot of time that they need. So, you know, people, uh, foster parents, a lot of times find it hard to deal with. We get a lot of, uh, you know, of tips about, you know, basically mistreatment of foster homes, of foster parents by CYFD. But I think in a kind of more broad sense, there have been a lot of efforts nationally and at the state level to reduce the use of foster homes. I mean, there's, uh, there's an argument, uh, and it's an understandable one, that kids do better in, you know, in a family placement. So let's try to put these kids, other, like, let's not take them away from the family, let's try to work with the family and keep them in that family setting and not put them into foster care. Um, there's a federal act called the Families First Act that incentivizes uh, states to do that. Uh, the governor has, you know, um, indicated that that's what she wants as well. And so there's kind of been a shift away from taking kids away from the family, which used to be kind of the knee-jerk response. Um, on the flip side of that, we've been seeing lately a lot of cases where kids are being put back in very dangerous situations with the family, and there's been some tragic outcomes there too. Um, zooming out kind of more broadly. There's so much talk, I feel like, in our culture about caring for children, loving children. Uh, but it really, it seems to me either like lip service or that as a society, we're saying we care for some children, but not others. And I wonder sort of your thoughts on that as you've been reporting on this for so long. Yeah. Um there has, I mean, it, it's a perennial campaign issue in New Mexico. Let's fix, you know, our dismal child well-being situation. Um, but, you know, at the same time, nothing ever seems to change. And we are talking about these are the kids that, um, that come from, you know, marginalized situations, marginalized communities uh, very often. I mean, there's a disproportionate number of Native American children that this affects um, and other, you know, other groups that we just, uh, you know, 
society has mistreated, you know, uh, in in a general way. And so, they, the way that these problems persist, I mean, it is it is frustrating and it is upsetting, especially because there are solutions out there that have been um, talked about and beyond. I mean, we've we have an agreement that the state signed that if it complied with uh, you know, the terms of that agreement would really do a lot to, to shift this, uh, this paradigm that we find ourselves in. But it's a lot easier to, um, to say you're gonna do something than to actually follow through. And it, again, like, I think what we see sometimes, like in the case of the, um, the residential treatment centers being shut down, is that it's easy to dismantle a system. This also happened with the, um, with the behavioral health system in 2013. But then building up, doing the work to build an alternative, that's where we drop the ball. And so we see a lot of loss of services, a lot of loss of things that could help these kids, and not very much momentum in, in building an alternative that could, you know, fill the gap. Yeah. So your reporting has had a lot of impact in the state, and I personally don't think it's a reporter's job to pose the solutions or figure out how to fix all the problems. Like, our role is to report. But I, I have to ask you, you know, what are the, the biggest things that you think we need to do? And, I mean, does this require, like, a reordering of our society? <laughs> well, fortunately, in this case, I mean, there's already been a solution that's been pretty widely praised. Um, that's the Kevin S. suit. Uh, you know, this is an agreement. Uh, Kevin S. was a plaintiff in a class action civil rights suit against the department um, that really outlined all these problems we've been talking about, that kids are just shuffled between inappropriate and dangerous placements, they're never given stability, uh, and that they experience all these crises along the way. It compounds their trauma. So there was a team of attorneys and experts, including Dr. George Davis, who's the former chief psychiatry uh, chief of psychiatry for COIFD, that really had an amazing, I mean, um, a very well thought out uh, rubric that was developed to change this paradigm. And the state agreed, one of the first things that uh, the Governor Lujan Grisham did was to, you know, to sign this agreement and to commit to serious changes. So the, the easy answer here is that the state could just comply with the settlement that it's already done. Of course, we have a history in New Mexico of having settlement agreements that drag on for decades. I hope that's not the case here. So you're a father, and um, I'm curious how doing this work over the course of five years has affected your heart, your family, your like outlook on the world. Yeah, I mean, it's um, before I had kids, this was a lot more abstract. Do you know what I mean? I like. Uh, it's always heartbreaking to read uh, an autopsy report or a police report with a child who was, uh, you know, who was abused and um, that could have been prevented. But now, you know, I tuck my kids into bed at night and they're okay. And then I, you know, you think about how many kids are not okay and it just strikes me as very unfair. Yeah, certainly unfair. Um, there, you know, there are these sorts of roadmaps and prescriptions um, for government agencies and government employees. But what about the rest of us? I think it's, it's once somebody knows and like I'm a mom once I read your stories uh, what are we supposed to do like what are we all supposed to do I get this question a lot and it what's really frustrating is like I mean 
I don't really have an answer. Like um, I, the the you know the obvious thing: call your legislator. You know, um, follow the news. Um, it's these are such complex questions. I mean, sometimes there's an easy fix. Um, sometimes it's something the governor can do with an executive order or the legislature can pass. Um, there were a lot of bills and a lot of energy last session um, that were aimed at fixing this. Um, most of them got vetoed by the governor, but I think that is the most effective way. And I think, you know, state, state government's a place where actually you can get through to your representative and uh, they will listen to you. Um, there are nonprofits out there that make this their life's work, uh, you know, addressing these problems and helping these kids. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, the, these are situations that, that are just um, so embedded and, and so difficult to fix. It's like asking how do you solve poverty, you know. Um, I wish I had an easy answer, but I don't. Great. Well, thank you for your reporting. I appreciate you, Ed. Thank you.